All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is time for the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner as today we look at some of the times, not all of the times, but some of the times that Christ connects the promise of the forgiveness of sins to good works. As we look at Apology Article 5, paragraphs 151 to 166. The doctrine of repentance, because it not only commands new works, but also promises the forgiveness of sins, necessarily requires faith. The forgiveness of sins is not received unless through faith. Therefore, in those passages that refer to repentance, we should always understand that not only works, but faith is also required. For example, Matthew 6:14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Here a work is required, and the promise of the forgiveness of sins is added. This does not happen because of the work, but through faith because of Christ. Just as the scripture testifies in many passages, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, Acts 10, 43. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, 1 John 2, 12. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Ephesians 1, 7. All right, the doctrine of repentance does not only call for works, it calls for faith. And that faith is what makes the works count. Because then you have a good work, not just a work that we have dreamed up for ourselves to try to make some sort of appeal to God on our behalf. And then Melanchthon goes on in paragraph 153. What need is there to recite testimonies? Why do we need to come up with more and more proof text? Why? Because sometimes that's how religious arguments happen. And why some of us have to step away from those on Facebook to say, no, I could go after this, I could go after points A, B, D, and E on this six-point chart, but that's just going to take up too much of my time and will not be any good for the person who has originally posted it, who believes A through F. But what need is there to recite testimonies? This is the very voice unique to the gospel, namely that for Christ's sake, and not for the sake of our works, we obtain the forgiveness of sins through faith. Our adversaries work to suppress this voice of the gospel by means of distorted passages, which contain the doctrine of the law or of works. It is true that in the doctrine of repentance, works are required because certainly a new life is required. But here the adversaries wrongly add that by such works we merit the forgiveness of sins or justification. Here we look back to baptism, and we see that we are drowned in baptism, put to death in our baptism, and raised to newness of life. That's repentance, that newness of life. Continuing on in paragraph 154, our focus for this week. Christ often connects the promises of the forgiveness of sins to good works, yet not because he means that good works are an atoning sacrifice, for they follow reconciliation. Christ makes this connection for two reasons. One is because good fruit must necessarily follow. He reminds us that if good fruit do not follow, the repentance is hypocritical and fake. The other reason is that we have need of outward signs of so great a promise. A conscience full of fear has need of much consolation. 
Baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs that continually remind, cheer, and encourage despairing minds to believe more firmly that their sins are forgiven. So the same promise is written and portrayed in good works, in order that these works may remind us to believe more firmly. Those who produce no good works do not encourage themselves to believe, but despise these promises. On the other hand, the godly embrace them and rejoice that they have the signs and testimonies of so great a promise. So they exercise themselves in these signs and testimonies. Therefore, just as the Lord's Supper does not justify by the outward act, ex opere operato, without faith, so alms do not justify us by the outward act, ex opere operato, without faith. All right. So yes, Christ does talk about works when he talks about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And the two reasons. First, for faith to be living and active, there must be fruit that follows after repentance. There must be that visible sign that the forgiveness has been given and accepted and that we are trying to do, as we do at the end of private confession absolution, say that I want to do better. What more is there to say about this? I mean, no, good works do not justify us. Good works are the signs that we have been justified, that we have been reconciled. And that is the point Jesus makes every time he connects forgiveness and good works. And now we get into the interesting part. As we get into paragraphs 156 to 159, here we go to the book of Tobit in the Apocrypha. And this is one of the great passages that the Catholics still to this day like to throw at Lutherans as to showing that good works are required for forgiveness and putting it before and meriting salvation instead of afterwards. To give a little background on the book of Tobit, uh, I for one am one of these Lutherans who do believe that the Apocrypha has a place in the Bible, not the same as the Old Testament or the New Testament, but is still a profitable reading for Christians. Because this gives us an idea into the mind of the Jewish nation and people in between Malachi and Matthew. So I'm going to read Tobit chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. This is the main paragraph of Tobit's instructions to his son Tobias. Uh, as he gets ready to go off to his journey. Remember the Lord our God all your days, my son, and refuse to sin or to transgress his commandments. Live uprightly all the days of your life and do not walk in the ways of wrongdoing. For if you do what is true, your ways will prosper through your deeds. Give alms from your possessions to all who live uprightly and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you make it. Do not turn your face away from any poor man and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gift from them in proportion. If few, do not be afraid to give according to the little you have. You will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For charity delivers from death and keeps you from entering the darkness. And for all who practice charity is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. That is the ESV version of the Book of Tobit. will have a little bit different in the translation from the Latin of the Apology, but that is what we are looking at in this text. This is the proof text that the Roman authorities have put forward to debunk the Lutheran idea that good works follow faith. 
and reconciliation and justification. All right, paragraphs 156 to 159. The address of Tobit 411 ought to be received this way also. Alms free from every sin and from death. We will not say that this is an exaggeration, although we should see it that way so that we do not detract from the praise of Christ, whose right it is to free from sin and death. But we must come back to the rule that without Christ, the doctrine of the law is of no profit. Therefore, those alms please God that follow reconciliation or justification, and not those that come before. They do not free from sin and death by the outward act. As we have said before about repentance, we ought to embrace faith and its fruit. So here we must say about alms that this entire newness of life saves. Alms are also exercises of faith, which receives the forgiveness of sins and overcomes death, while it exercises itself more and more, and in these exercises receives strength. We grant also that alms merit many favors from God, lessen punishments, and merit our defense in the dangers of sins and of death, as we have said a little before about the entire repentance. Topet's address, regarded as a whole, shows that faith is required before alms. Be mindful of the Lord your God all your days. Verse 5, we started off with. Afterward, bless the Lord your God always, and desire of him that your ways be directed by him. Verse 19. This, however, belongs properly to that faith which believes that God is reconciled to it because of his mercy, and which wishes to be justified, sanctified, and governed by God. But our adversaries, charming men, pick out mutilated sentences in order to deceive those who are unskilled. Afterward, they attach something from their own opinions. Therefore, entire passages are to be required. According to the common rule, it is inappropriate before the entire law is thoroughly examined to judge or reply when a single clause of it is presented. When produced in their entirety, passages very frequently bring the interpretation with them. Therefore, I first read Tobit 4, verses 5 through 11. I could have gone on and just read the entire chapter of Tobit 4, but it's that portion that was the main thing. So, what is it that we have in Tobit? What does Tobit have to say, and does it agree with the adversaries, or does it agree with the reformers? Uh, paragraph 157, we go back to, Those alms please God that follow reconciliation or justification and not those that come before. Hebrews 11.6 again. Without faith, without reconciliation, without justification, it is impossible to please God. Period. But the adversaries are still going on about it. So what are alms? Alms are exercises of faith, which receives the forgiveness of sins and overcomes death, while it exercises itself more and more, and in these exercises receive strength. Almsgiving is simply that, giving to the poor that show that we have been forgiven and we have been greatly blessed through our forgiveness, and therefore we seek to bless others. So Tobit tells Tobias that he should give alms to upright people that are, they are trying to actually make a better life for themselves and not those who are just there to see how much money they can raise because they can get more standing on the street corner than they can actually working a job. And it's less work most times. But here, Tobit's address needs to be regarded as a whole, showing that faith is required before alms. Be mindful of the Lord. Remember the Lord our God all your days. Remember 
be mindful is that faithful understanding of who the Lord our God is. Because if you do not have the proper understanding of who God is, you will not please him. And therefore they say in paragraph 159 that you cannot take mutilated passages and sentences out of context. You must have the entire passage there. And with that, you often find the interpretation. But we must not just pick verses out of thin air just because we did a quick Bible gateway search and on a word and just found, ooh, that, that fits what I want to say. That fits what I want to say. And without regarding what is going on around it. Because in nothing else in our world are we allowed to do that. We want to take sound bites of people to make fun of them, to put out points. But the opponents will say, those who do not want to have that person or that thing ridiculed, will say, you have to listen to the whole thing. I mean, we do this in everything. We do this in our political arguments, but we want to not do that in our religious discussions because, well, that just takes too much time. Really, people, it doesn't take that much time. Read the passages. All right, moving on to the next one. Paragraphs 160 to 163, we are looking at Luke chapter 11, verses, uh, verse 41. Again, cited in a mutilated form, namely, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. The adversaries are very stupid. Melanchthon's words, they're actually in there. Time and again, we have said that the gospel about Christ should be added to the preaching of the law. Because of Christ, good works are pleasing. But our adversaries teach everywhere that Christ being excluded, justification is merited by the works of the law. When this passage is produced unmutilated, it will show that faith is required. Christ rebukes the Pharisees who think that they are cleansed before God, that is, that they are justified, by frequent bathings. This is just as some pope or other who says that holy water sanctifies and cleanses the people, and the gloss says that it cleanses from venial sins. Such also were the opinions of the Pharisees that Christ rebuked. Against this phony cleansing, he sets up a double cleanness, one inward, the other outward. He bids them be cleansed inwardly and adds concerning the outward cleansing, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. The adversaries do not rightly apply the phrase everything, for Christ adds this conclusion to both parts. All things will be clean unto you, if you will be clean within, and will outwardly give alms. He shows that outward cleanness is to be connected to works commanded by God and not to human traditions. These traditions were the bathings held at that time, like the daily sprinkling of water. The clothing amongst the distinction of food and similar pompous acts appear this way to us now. But the adversaries distort the meaning by transferring the universal phrase to only one part, like sophist. All things will be clean to those having given alms. Yet Peter says in Acts 15.9, having cleansed their hearts by faith. When this entire passage is examined, it presents a meaning harmonizing with the rest of Scripture. If the hearts are cleansed and then outwardly alms are added, i.e., all the works of love, they are entirely clean, i.e., not only within, but also without. Why is not Christ's entire speech added to it? There are many parts of the rebuke, some of which give commandments about faith and others about works. 
It is not the place of an honest reader to pick out the commands about works while the passages about faith are skipped. An honest reader, an honest speaker, an honest student of the word does not just go and pick individual verses without looking at the context. That is what Jesus is saying from this very point and what Melanchthon stresses about. That the Pharisees wanted the frequent bathings and that the apostles were eating with unclean hands. That's another story all together itself. But what is clean is what Christ makes clean. <clears throat> Paragraph 164. Last, readers are to be reminded of this. The adversaries give the worst advice to godly consciences when they teach that the forgiveness of sins is earned by works. Conscience, in seeking forgiveness through works, cannot be confident that the work will satisfy God. It is always tormented and continually invents other works and other acts of worship until it completely despairs. This course is described by Paul in Romans 4.5. There he proves that the promise of righteousness is not obtained because of our works. We could never affirm that we have reconciled God for the law always accuses. So the promise would be vain and uncertain. He concludes that this promise of the forgiveness of sins and of righteousness is received through faith, not because of works. This is Paul's true, simple, and genuine meaning. In it, the greatest consolation is offered to godly consciences, and Christ's glory is shown forth. Here certainly was given to us for this purpose, namely, that through him we might have grace, righteousness, and peace. Conscience in seeking forgiveness through works will not find it because the law always accuses. The law always says we haven't done enough and therefore we will come up with new works and new works and new works, which is why we have people who in the early church went out and were hermits out in the desert for their own benefit. They wanted to get away from the world. They wanted to focus on the scriptures. Very wonderful, very admirable way of doing it. But that becomes then the monasteries and the convents. And it goes from being not a place to study the scriptures, but a place to show that we are better than the scriptures. And it just keeps going and going and going. All right, we're going to Finish up with paragraphs 156 or 165 and 166 as we get to this, the end of this section of the Apology, Article 5. So far, we have reviewed the chief passages that the adversaries cite against us. They point to these passages to try to show that faith does not justify and that we merit forgiveness of sins and grace by our works. But we hope that we have shown clearly enough to godly consciences that A, these passages are not opposed to our doctrine, B, the adversaries wickedly distort the scripture to their own opinions, C, most of the passages that they cite have been garbled, D, while leaving out the clearest passages about faith, they only select from the scriptures passages about works, and even these they distort. E, Everywhere they add certain human opinions to what words of Scripture say. F. They teach the law in such a way as to suppress the gospel about Christ. The entire doctrine of the adversaries is, in part, derived from human reason. In part, it is a doctrine of the law, not of the gospel. For they teach two ways of justification. One derived from reason, 
and the other derived from the law, not from the gospel or the promise about Christ. So Melanchthon will go on next week to talk about the difference between those two things and what it means to be derived by human reason and derived by the law instead of the gospel. And honestly, human reason and the law are the same thing because the law makes sense to us. It is a checklist of things that we need to do and things that we need to avoid. And therefore, should be easy to follow. Except for it's not. We can't do it. And unfortunately, all the law does is remind us that we can't do it. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for standing in the confessional corner with me, Pastor Doug Minton, as I bring you the ideas so that you may successfully wrestle with the theologies around you, including those that are derived from human reason and the law, with the promise of Christ that, yes, good works are necessary, but good works follow after justification. Amen.